Hi everyone and welcome to our podcast In Good Company. I'm Nikola Tangen, the CEO of the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund. In this podcast, I talk to the leaders of some of the largest companies we are invested in so that you can learn what we own and meet these impressive leaders. Today, I'm speaking to Nandan Nilekani, the co-founder and chairman of Infosys, one of the world's largest IT companies with more than 300,000 employees. We've been invested in Infosys since 2011, and we own more than 1% of the company. This translates to 10 billion Norwegian kroner or 1.2 billion US dollars. Nandan has had an amazing career, both at Infosys and also done some tremendous work for the Indian government, where he, for instance, led the biggest social project on the planet. He's a super interesting guy. Tune in. So Nandan, a huge pleasure to have you on. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time. It's a real honor. Thank you, Nicola. It's really wonderful to be on your show. <laughs> Why are there so many fantastic Indian-born CEOs in the tech industry in America? Well, I think that's a great question. And I feel that it's possibly because Indians have grown up forever dealing with ambiguity and being able to be agile and quick when things change. And in a world which is becoming far more ambiguous, where there are so many choices, where there's no hard and fast, there's no black and white. I think Indo Indian CEOs do very well in this world of ambiguity. Yeah, but I mean, uh, you guys uh, run Microsoft, Alphabet, IBM, and you know, your own company. It's quite amazing, no? It is. It is. And uh, what's interesting, Nikola, is that uh, many of the Indian CEOs in the West actually are from one school called Hyderabad Public School in Hyderabad. And uh, people like uh, Satya Nadella and Ajay Banga, who was the chairman and CEO of MasterCard, Prem Vatsa, who's a big investor in Toronto, uh, then Shantanu Narayan, who's the CEO of Adobe, are actually all from one school. So tell me about the school. Well, this seems to be a school for CEOs. It's a public, Hyderabad public school. Hyderabad is, as you know, the city of Te the capital of Telangana. And uh, clearly, there's something special. But I think, uh, you know, we have CEOs from many backgrounds, but uh, you see, I think there was a huge, I mean, there are a lot of Indians in the tech sector, and obviously some of them are sharp enough to rise to the top. Yeah, that's for that's for sure. But why why is uh, India so good in, in tech and software? Well, you know, I believe that uh, there are many reasons. One is, of course, uh, India has a strong tradition in maths and uh, STEM skills, the kind of skills you need for programming and so on. And essentially, the last uh, 30, 40 years, there's been a huge uh, uh, demand for software professionals. When Infosys began, for example, in 1981, we sensed this opportunity that there would be a huge demand for software skills. Uh, and I think then the whole education system has been geared towards that. It's become the first profession of choice for young people. So it's created a virtuous cycle, which has led to you know, today in India alone, we have close to half a million people working in the software business. And then, of course, many others who have gone abroad. So it's really become the sort of uh, dominant uh, 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 choice of uh, uh, profession for many young people. Hmm. I know that you are very, very optimistic about the outlook for India. And I think you're even coming to R&D's UCA in August uh, to talk about it, right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I've been working, uh, this is more in my philanthropic capacity. Uh, I've been working with uh, the Norwegian government and NORAD and 
they have set up something called the Digital Public Goods Alliance. And basically the idea is how do we use digital transformation to help nations around the world. So I'm uh, working closely with Norway and therefore they invited me to come there and speak. And they said, that is the best forum in Norway to come. And I said, I'll come and I believe you'll be there too. So I'm really looking forward to that week. Yeah, I thought the two of us should... Uh should eat some uh, fresh uh, shrimps uh, at the harbour side there. Sounds good to me, and we can go on a boat. <laughs> but why are you now more optimistic about the outlook for India than you have been in the past? I, I believe that India is at a cusp of uh, momentous change. The first thing is that India has a very strong uh, position in its reserves and foreign exchange, uh, basically because of its people. Uh, you know, the software industry in India is currently at $227 billion uh, of annual revenue. And it took 30 years to go from zero to 100 billion. Uh, it took 10 years go to go from 100 billion to 200 billion. And it's going to go to 300 billion in three to four years. So there's a scale change of growth happening. And that generates a lot of uh, dollars for the country. Uh, so just like, you know, you get money from oil. In India, we get money from software. And then India is also a huge recipient of money sent back by immigrants from abroad. This year, the total inward remittance of India is about $100 billion, which is by far the biggest of any country in the world because lots of Indians are working all over the world and sending money back. So our foreign exchange condition is very, very strong. And domestically also, uh, reforms in taxation and all that, uh, taxes are growing faster than the GDP growth. So both the domestic financial situation and the foreign exchange situation is very strong. We have this huge talent base. We have 90,000 startups in India today. And we, of course, have India's digital infrastructure, some of which I, I was involved with, like Aadhaar. So all these things are coming together. And the geopolitics is also favoring India because countries who are doing manufacturing are looking at a China plus one strategy. So it's a combination of things happening, Nikolai, which is all putting India in the sweet spot. Now, talking about the sweet spot, uh, Infosys, which you uh, founded, has an important place there. Tell us about Infosys. Uh, Infosys is a company which was uh, founded in 1981. That's uh, almost 42 years back. Uh, it was founded uh, under the leadership of Mr. Narayan Murthy, who was the first founder chairman. I was one of the co-founders. Uh, today, uh, I am the chairman, uh, co-founder and chairman. I've been in that role for the last five years. And Infosys was built on the dream of creating a professionally, a professionally run Indian company that was globally respected in the software space. And essentially, we have been able to ride the different waves of technology in the world. We have restarted the mainframes and mini computers and PCs and the internet. And then you had, you know, all, all the, all the, th all the smartphones. Today we have AI. So Infosys has been very agile at, at riding this. And today, its uh, revenue is in excess of $17 billion, employing 330,000 people in 40 countries and a market cap of between 75 to 80 billion. So it's really become a flagship company from India uh, and well recognized around the world. And our clients are essentially 1,700 of the world's largest companies for whom we do various kinds of digital transformation. It's an amazing um, story. What, what would you say has been the key to the success? 
I think Infosys was a company created uh, with the intention to create an institution. So there's always long-term thinking, great values, alignment of uh, leadership, the ability to postpone gratification. So we're willing to work hard today for a better tomorrow, uh, a very employee-focused approach, very strong standards of corporate governance so that we wanted to be a company that the people from around the world will respect and invest in. So very strong corporate governance, a very strong focus on quality, and also a philosophy of continuous learning. We have massive investments in learning, and we make sure that every one of our over 3,000, 30,000 employees have access to the best, most current learning so they can keep on top of technology and business trends and deliver value to customers. So training continuously is a big part of what we have done. What's the key to getting that into the mindset of the people there? Well, I think the uh, the thing always has been we are in an industry which is changing rapidly and uh, there are new paradigms emerging every few years. And we realize that if we have to be relevant to our customers, we must be on top of what's happening because we have to guide and navigate our customers to their future. And I think everybody has internalized that. We set up our education team more than 20 years back. So it's, it's a long story, long history of investing in education. We also realized that the rapidly changing business we had, students coming out of the colleges would not have the latest uh, background because universities move slower than companies. And therefore, we had to invest additionally in their basic education to make them ready for the complex challenges of the world. Mm. Well, we are we are soon kicking off what we call the MBIM Academy, where we try to cross-teach the various skill sets that we have internally in the fund. But you have, I believe, the world's largest corporate university. That's right. We have a massive uh, campus in the city of Mysore, which is uh, not far, maybe two, three hours from Bangalore. Uh, and we have a, a huge campus where we can train 40,000 people at one time. It's probably the world's largest corporate university. But increasingly, today's training, especially in the era of COVID, has, has gone virtual. So we have a very good hybrid blend of virtual uh, training through the app on your phone, physical training, combination thereof. And that makes our learning, learning systems very, very flexible. We also built a new uh, education center in the city of Indianapolis in uh, Indiana, U.S., and that's going to be our uh, headquarters for the training of our uh, employees in the U.S. We are a big recruiter in the U.S. We are hiring thousands of people there and we're investing in their training. So what are the skills you are prioritizing now? Oh, we have uh, you know, literally hundreds of skills. Some of it, of course, are technical skills, whether it's coding, designing, project management, AI, big data analytics, you know, all the, all, uh, the cloud, cloud system and so on. A lot of them are technical skills which are required, but we're also training them on business knowledge. We have uh, different groups that address different domains, whether it's energy or banking or insurance or uh, utilities or whatever. And we have deep domain knowledge because we work with the world's best companies. And therefore, we also train people in uh, domain skills. And then we also uh, train people in how to work in a consultative and collaborative manner because today's complex world needs everyone to come together to solve a problem. Now, if you were to acquire a new skill, what would that be? To me, uh, my, my biggest uh, thing is curiosity is a skill. In the sense, I believe that we have to keep learning and keep... Uh, so, uh, I, I, you know, I don't look at a specific skill. I make sure that I'm always curious 
and that enables me to remain on top of all the stuff that's happening around me. And that then I, if that leads to learning a particular skill, for example, if I need to learn something about you know, chat GPT and how to do prompt engineering, then I will try that out to learn that skill. What do you think about that? Well, I think uh, definitely chat GPT has brought in a new paradigm. I mean, I think a lot of the AI was already there, but I think their, uh, their leapfrog was to put a very consumer user-oriented uh, UI on top of all the transformer technology that was already there. And, uh, you know, we are seeing huge opportunities because now, Anybody can use this tool to extend their and amplify their capabilities. So, in fact, uh, right now, one of the things uh, we are looking at is how to make AI usage more pervasive in our company and in our clients' companies. Well, it's interesting. This morning, uh, I got the chat uh, GPT to write uh, my LinkedIn post by itself. Oh, wow. <laughs> I hope it's not making investment decisions too. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> Changing um, tax a bit here and uh, touching on sustainability, how can you as an information technology company help companies deliver their, on their sustainability goals? Oh, I believe that uh, digital technology is very, very critical to sustainability goals. Uh, Infosys actually has been a world leader on sustainability uh, and we achieved carbon neutrality in 2020, 30 years ahead of the Paris uh, goal. Uh, and we have, over the last 15 years, we have built something like 57 million square feet of office space. We have extremely efficient buildings, very low use of energy, recycling of water, very using of natural lightning, biodiversity in all our campuses. And we manage all this through our networks. We actually have a, a central um, network management for all our buildings where we get real-time sensors and data on what's happening. So I think, uh, you know, sustainability will require huge amounts of data to manage, monitor, transform, and all that requires technology. So there's, a, or if you, tomorrow, if you have a smart grid, a uh, grid where thousands of, you know, car batteries are feeding in tires at night, or windmills are, you know, sometimes giving power, sometimes not. How do you manage such a complex grid, which has both feed in and feed out tariffs, where production of energy is all, you know, very variable. All that requires very sophisticated networks and technology. So I do believe that digital transformation is also critical for the energy transition that the world is facing. Mm. So it's helping your own business, but you are also helping other companies to reach their goals. Philosophy that we should do it to ourselves before we talk to our clients. So our sustainability journey has given us enormous credentials and credibility with our clients. Because we are talking from real world experience. Similarly, when we talk about digital transformation, uh, we have done our own digital transformation over the last five years. So we can talk from real experience to our clients. So we use our own company as the place to try out all the things we talk about because that's the learning that we can then take to our clients. Mm -hmm. um, touching on um, on governance, how do you see your role as a chairman? Or that's chairperson, very, I guess it's called. Yeah, that's days. a very good question, Nicola, because uh, in my previous avatar, uh, from 1981 to 2009, I, I was an executive, I was a CEO, I was involved with running the business. And then, as you know, I took a break from Infosys and joined the government to do the Aadhaar ID project. We can talk about that later. And then it so happened in 2017, eight years after I had left, uh, there was a management crisis and I, I, I had to come back to set things right. And I realized that the role of uh, governance is very different from the role of management. Ma you know, management actually 
you know, does the business, sells, delivers, collects. Governance is about, you know, enabling the right leadership, aligning everybody else, succession planning, ensuring that bad behavior is, uh, is you know, is, is, is punished, uh, making sure that governance standards are very high. So uh, I, I found that governance is very different from uh, operations. And I've learned that in the last five years because I'm really a non-executive chairman. Uh, and we have a fine management team under the leadership of Mr. Salil Parekh, who actually runs the business. So I think I learned what it means to be running the business. And now I learned what it means to be stepping away from the business, but allowing management to run at their optimal level. Do you think it's important that the chairperson and the CEO are two different people? Yes, I believe so. Uh, I, I believe uh, uh, the role of a CEO is very different uh, from the role of a chairman. Uh, and uh, I think it's important to separate that. I, I believe it's important to have a nominations and remuneration committee, which is a fully composed of independent board members who reviews the compensation and incentives for the management. Yeah, I think all these things, all these create checks and balances that are very required for a large global corporation. And why do you think they don't do it more often in the States? I, I don't know. I, mean, I, I believe, I think the number now is uh, there's still uh, 35% of the big companies which have the chairperson and the CEO in one role. Yeah, I, mean, I, I, I really don't know. I mean, you know, you as a huge investor should probably be asking that question. But uh, I don't... I, we do. We do all the time and we, we, we really don't like it. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think uh, maybe uh, we are a bit, you know, more traditional in our thinking. Uh, and, uh, you know, and even, even, when, even when the role is the same person, obviously, then you need a very strong lead independent director. Uh, in my case, technically, though I am non-executive chairman, I'm not an independent chairman because I'm a founder. So, uh, I'm, but I'm non-executive and uh, there's a clear delineation of responsibility between the CEO and the, and the chairman. And uh, so, uh, I, 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 don't, I just believe that checks and balances are important in running a company. Um, we talked about uh, chat uh, GPT. Any other um, technological developments you are particularly concerned about for the moment or excited about? No, I, th I, think, I, I think definitely uh, AI is a very significant game changer. Uh, we have been using AI, but I think recent developments in AI with the consumerization of AI in some sense, I think is a very significant thing. Uh, obviously, we do follow other uh, new ideas like uh, blockchain and metaverse and all that. But I don't personally find them as gripping and compelling as what uh, AI can do. In 2009, you left Infosys to work for the Prime Minister and you led a tremendously big project. Tell us. What happened in 2009 uh, was, you know, in 2008, I had written a book called Imagining India, where I talked about big ideas for the future. And one of those ideas was to have a digital ID for every Indian uh, to streamline governance. And in 2009, the then Prime Minister, Dr. Manmohan Singh, invited me to actually implement this idea. So, so sort of walk the talk, so to speak. And I joined the government of India in the rank of a cabinet minister with a specific mandate to give every Indian a digital ID. Uh, and we did that project successfully. By the time I stepped down in 2014, we had 600 million people on the platform. Uh, and subsequently, the new government took it with even more fervor. And today, 1.3 billion Indians have a unique digital ID, which they can authenticate online 
and the system does about 80 million authentications a day. It provides an electronic know your customer. So you can open a bank account in two minutes using your digital ID called Aadhaar. You can digitally sign your documents on your phone using Aadhaar. You can store your documents on your phone using digital locker. So these are all digital public goods at population scale, which have led to a transformation of the way Indians live their lives. It's um, just some uh, unbelievable numbers. You may not know, but we are only 5 million Norwegians. So that would be a piece of cake for you to, uh, yeah. to sort out some of the uh, IT systems here. But just give us a feel for the magnitude of the signing up and how you structured it. Well, you know, first of all, we had to build a very sophisticated uh, backend because we had to deduplicate a billion people using biometrics. Nobody had done that before. We were in uncharted territories and we had to basically push the envelope on biometric deduplication uh, at scale. At the front end, we had to enroll one and a half million people a day. So we'd cover Norway in three days in our model. Uh, and for that, we had 35,000 enrollment stations around the country. Uh, and people would enroll about 50 people per day per station. And then all the data would be sent back. We would deduplicate it and assign unique numbers to people, making sure there are no duplicates. And that deduplication would lead to, you know, maybe a, a 500 in a billion trans it was a very, very uh, sophisticated system. Uh, but we were able to do this because we were able to do one and a half million, and we did it using an interesting model. We didn't buy the CapEx. We encouraged private entrepreneurs to buy the CapEx, and the government reimbursed them on an OPEX basis. So the government would give them half a euro or half a dollar per day uh, per enrollment. And therefore, they had an incentive to enroll more and more people. But we also, because of the deduplication, we could make sure they didn't game the system and they enrolled only new people into the system. So there are a lot of, uh, you know, uh, incentive design, incentive compatible design to make this work at scale. Uh, and that was a big learning for me. And of course, I had to manage the environment. I had to deal with politicians, bureaucrats, judges, lawyers, activists, journalists, and take this idea off to its logical conclusion. So that was actually more difficult than the technology, which is managing people and getting different people aligned behind one goal. Well, what's the key to leading and managing 300,000 people? I think there's there's two parts to it. There's one or maybe three parts. I mean, the one part is, of course, uh, the, uh, the systems to manage. You know, for example, Infosys, though it has 65 subsidiaries, we are able to close our books within 10, 12 days of the quarter ending across the world and get them audited, which is quite remarkable. And therefore, we have very strong systems on running the company and very strong uh, checks and balances, audit and those kind of things. It's very strong. Our audit committee is a very, very professional, independent board members and so on. So there's a sort of the management through technology process audit. Then there is the whole uh, propagation of our culture. Uh, you know, how do we, at the same time, we, we can't be totally one style in culture. Culture has to have a set of cultural elements that are uh, common, but at the same time, you know, the way our employees are in Norway may be different from the way they are in Australia. So we have to strike the right balance between, you know, local and global. And then, of course, I think uh, the, the values, not only the practice of values, uh, it's also the enforcement of values. So no matter how senior a person is or how important he, is, he or she is to the company, if there is a, a violation of value, values, then we would come down very strongly. 
So the combination of uh, systems which are harder, a culture which is softer, and uh, value values which are reinforced. That's how you know you you manage uh, such a large company and a huge investment in leadership development. We we spend a lot of time and money and effort in making sure our you know we have close to a thousand leaders in the company who are uh, who are the investment we make in their values, in their training, in their global exposure, in their succession planning, in their career planning. All this is very important uh, to create that engine of growth and uh, you know. In a, in, a, in a changing world. You mentioned that uh, you would be hard on violations of values. What could that be? So it could be anything. You know, for example, if somebody is uh, doing something financially inappropriate, uh, then that person would not be in the company if, if it was established that he or she had done something wrong. If if there's a, a sexual harassment charge, and if that is upheld, then that person also has no role in the company. Uh, you know, so they, these are all. Uh, you know, we 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 take these kind of uh, transgressions very seriously, and it does not matter whether the uh, you know how high the person is in the system. So nobody is exempt from uh, you know the enforcement of our values. That's very important because I think if employees feel that some senior people are getting a pass, then the the then it all becomes uh, you know just stop. And you know, and and we have a clear sense of purpose. Our purpose is to amplify human potential for the betterment of society, for the betterment of people, businesses, and communities. So that purpose is also pervasive in the company. So, if this um, was an, a job interview and I had applied for a job with you, what kind of things would you ask me? Well, first of all, I would uh, you know uh, check on uh, what you know. Second, I would try out a few scenarios and I would check on how you respond to those scenarios. Uh, I would look at your background and see uh, how well you have coped with change, how well you have coped with diversity, how well you have tackled new situations. And I think, knowing what I know of you, Nicola, I think you would make the cut. <laughs> well, uh, you you may see my application at some stage. <laughs> But um, what's the best leadership you personally have got? Well, I think uh, the best leadership advice, I guess, an amalgamation of what I've got from many people. But I think one clearly is. Look at the future. You know, it's very easy to mire ourselves in the past and get morose and uh, depressed about what happened in the past. But we, you know, in the when we when we are an action-oriented organization, there are bound to be some mistakes we make. So we need to stand up, dust our feet, dust our knees, and move on. Uh, I think being uh, uh, thinking about the future is very important. I think, as I said earlier, curiosity is very important. I think in today's world. You know, being on top of things requires you to be curious on a multidisciplinary way. It's not just about technology; it's about what's happening with people, with societies, with energy, whatever. So, being curious across the board is uh, very important, and it's also about leadership by example. Because people are very, very uh, get very disturbed if there's a gap between what you say and what you do. So, maintaining the Uh, sort of the integrity of the what you do, what you do, and what you say being consistent is, is very important, and uh, that's some of the things that you know. At least I have tried to practice, and also have a collegial and collaborative work style, because today the best ideas may be the junior most person in the company working in some remote customer location, and I need to make sure that that idea surfaces to the top. 
We have thousands of uh, young people listening to this podcast. What kind of advice would you give to them? Well, I think uh, they are actually in the world today at a very exciting time. I understand there are many challenges that we face today in the world, be it inflation or rising interest rates or the Ukraine crisis or you know COVID and so on. But at the same time, the world is uh, on the brink of uh, enormous positive change. I think we're going to see a huge uh, energy transition in the next 20 years. We're going to see a huge digital transformation. Uh, so there's ample opportunity for us in the world. Uh, and uh, I think uh, it's for them. They have to be, I think they have to always make sure they're relevant. If you're relevant, you will do fine. And relevance may vary from context to context. But if you're relevant in what you do, and if you have made sure that you are able to deliver value. The other point I would say is that a lot of things that we do, do today may be uh, made obsolete by technology. You know, just like, uh, you know, there was a time when we calculated by ourselves and now we use a calculator or a computer. Tomorrow's AI will make a lot of things happen through the computer. And therefore, you have to think, well, how do I remain relevant and useful and adding value in an era where everything is AI driven? And finally, it boils down to human skills and human values, the value of empathy, the value of ideation and connecting the dots, the value of collaboration, the value of uh, thinking about the future in a non-linear way. So I think we have to finally say, what is it that we can do in a world where many of the things we do today have, will become automated? Mm -hmm. And how do you relate to technology in your personal life? I actually, I'm, uh, I, for me, technology is an instrument of bringing, uh, you know, social change for enabling better equality, uh, you know, making it an open access society where people can use technology. All the work I've done, I've not only done the Aadhaar project, I'm also the advisor to India's uh, payment system called UPI, built by the National Payment Corporation of India, and that's a very successful payment system which has enabled more than 250 million Indians to make digital payments on their phone uh, very, very quickly, in real time. So you um, have recently written a book about uh, how we cope with technology. It's called The Art of Bitfulness. What, what is that about? You know, this was a book which came out of the pandemic, uh, Nikolai, because what I saw in the pandemic was that all of us, our digital intensity had gone up because we did our work on our devices, we did our entertainment on our devices, we ordered food on our devices, we ordered goods on our devices, we had relationships on our devices, whatever. And also I saw that a lot of people were being affected by this excessive use of digital uh, technology. They were doom scrolling about the you know pandemic and vaccines and whatnot. And I realized that while we have great value for technology, we run the risk of becoming uh, you know, uh, sort of controlled by it also in some sense. Because the nature of uh, these uh, uh, social media apps and all that is to encourage you to spend more time on the apps. And the way they do that is by making, you know, appealing to your emotions and making you angry about something. So the book is about keeping calm in a digital world, which is rather than let the technology lead you, how do you master technology in a way that you get your benefits? How you use your social media products? How you handle your email? Uh, how, how do you create a, uh, a world where you can, uh, you know, do serious work or you can do browsing work or you can do entertainment. They're just a way of running your life, uh, which a lot of people have found very useful. Mm -hmm. Well, um, 
a big thanks for taking the time to be with us today. And I cannot wait to continue our conversation over shrimps in Arendal in August. Sounds like a great plan. Not just shrimps, I want some Norwegian beer or whatever you guys drink. Absolutely. I'm on for everything. Very good. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Nikolai. It's a great interview. Thanks a lot.